We're in the Gospel according to St. Luke again tonight, Luke's Gospel, and tonight it's the 16th chapter. So if you have a copy of God's Word there, Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, and while you're looking up the place, can we say how delighted we are to see you in the meeting tonight, and we welcome you again in the Saviour's precious name. We want to thank our friends for singing, for ministering in song, and we trust that the Lord will bless those messages to our hearts. But let's read tonight from Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. This week has gone by so quickly, and it's been a joy and a privilege to be with you, and we believe you've enjoyed something of the Lord's presence in the meetings. But it's a very solemn portion of God's Word we're reading tonight, and the spokesman here is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. Now, the Bible tells us in the first chapter of John's Gospel that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. And everything that he said, of course, was true. But everything that the Lord said as well was seasoned with grace. And he spoke from a heart of love about some of the most solemn subjects in all the world. And tonight we're looking at a very solemn portion of God's Word. The Son of God is the speaker. And in Luke chapter 16 and verse 19, the Son of God says these words. I want you to listen carefully. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. And seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would ascend him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. That's the Old Testament scriptures. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went on to them from the dead, they will repent. Then he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose 
from the dead. And we know that the Lord will bless this public reading of his own inspired and infallible word. Let's pray together very briefly and ask the Lord to help us and pray earnestly tonight if you're a Christian that the Spirit of God will move in hearts. And let's have everybody seeking God together. And let's have no distractions as we consider this very solemn yet very important portion of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank Thee once again for bringing us to this hour. We thank Thee, Lord, for the ministry and song, and we thank Thee, Lord God, for the clarity of it and for the solemnity of it as well. We thank Thee for the reading of Thy Word, and we pray tonight, Lord, that the Spirit of God would apply the Word savingly to hearts tonight. Father, we look to Thee, Lord, we're hungry and we're thirsty for the presence of God and for Thy speaking voice. We pray that our Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted. And Lord, we pray that every person in this meeting and others listening in online would know that their sins are forgiven, that their souls are saved, that they've been brought savingly to the cross, and that they're on the right path that will one day bring them into glory. Lord, we're praying that you will save, praying, Lord, that you will restore, praying that I will bless thy word and honor and exalt thy Son. Fill me, Lord, with thy Spirit. Hide me behind the cross. And grant that, Lord, thy name might be exalted and glorified. And, Lord, may there be signs following the preaching of the word of God this evening. Hear and answer prayer. We ask it with thanksgiving. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen. Amen. This portion that we have read together this evening records the lives of two very different individuals. Two men that lived at the opposite ends of not only the social spectrum, but also the spiritual spectrum. Their lives perhaps couldn't have been more different. How they lived stood in stark contrast the one against the other. One was rich, the other was poor. One fared sumptuously every day. The other was virtually starving. One was clothed in rags. The other one was clothed in the garments of royalty. One was godly. The other one was godless. Their lives were very, very different. And yet their eternities were more different still. One went to heaven. And the other, tragically and sadly, went to a lost eternity, went to hell. Now, I believe tonight that this is a true story. I don't believe that this is a fable. I don't believe it's an allegory. I don't even believe it's a parable. Although I am persuaded that many of the parables that the Lord told were true historical accounts. But there can be no doubt at all tonight that this is a true historical record that the Lord is bringing to bear upon his hearers. It begins in verse 19 with the words, There was a certain rich man. So the Lord is thinking about a, an individual that lived and died, a certain rich man. There was a certain rich man, a literal man, and the Lord, as he tells this story, makes mention of other people by name, something he doesn't normally do whenever he's telling a parable. He speaks about Lazarus, he speaks about Abraham, he speaks about Moses, and he also speaks about 
the prophets. Sometimes whenever the Lord spoke by way of parable, in fact, very often the Bible clarifies that. It'll say, and then the Lord spoke by way of parable. Or he might begin by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like unto, but he doesn't use such terminology in telling this particular story. And all of these things lead me to believe and to conclude that this is a literal historical account. But whether or not you disagree or agree with me in that point, it certainly serves to illustrate eternal realities, that heaven is real and so is hell. And here the Lord in grace and love and mercy is taking that veil that separates time from eternity and he's drawing it to one side and he's allowing us to see from this world into the world to come. And the things that we read make for very, very solemn reading. As we have said already, the story that the Lord is telling here has reference to two men. One of them is referred to as Lazarus. He was a beggar. The other is simply referred to as the rich man. And the rich man's name is not given. And I believe that that is very, very important. And we'll look at that right at the end of this message. And I want to focus upon this rich man who became so terribly poor in eternity. And I just simply entitled this message tonight, The Man With No Name. And I want you to consider this rich man, this rich man whose name is not given, the man with no name in life, then very briefly in death, and then we're going to look at him as well in eternity. And I want you to listen carefully. It's very easy for us in meetings like this to get distracted. And the Bible says that Satan wants to snatch away the good seed of God's Word out of hearts. And if you have never in earnest listened to the Word of God and never considered where you stand before God, I want you to give due care and consideration tonight to the Word of God and to where you stand before God and where you stand in relation to the cross, and where you stand in relation to eternity. Notice, first of all, the words of verse number 19, the man with no name in life. It simply says, there was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. Now, if you were to read that verse and not read anything else, you would look at this man and say, well, there's an individual, and it appears, it seems on the surface at least, that he has got the ideal standard of living, especially in the eyes of the world. He's got the ideal life by the, the world's standards, and the first thing that comes to bear as we think about the man with no name in life are his finances. He's simply described here as a certain rich man. And the fact that the Lord uses that adjective rich to describe this individual would indicate that first and foremost, that is what he is known for. This is the dominating thing in his life. This man was extremely wealthy. The Lord doesn't initially speak about his religion. He doesn't speak about his political viewpoints. He doesn't speak about his occupation. He primarily speaks about his riches. This is the first thing that the Lord says about this individual in relation to 
his finances. And so if people in that day and generation knew this man by name and they mentioned his name immediately, the people talking about him or thinking about him would say, well, that's the man that is exceedingly rich. He's well off. He's well healed. He's done well for himself. And maybe they would even view him as being the richest man in the locality, the richest man in town. It says there he was clothed in purple. And purple in Bible times was the color of royalty. And also in fine linen, the best of garments. Fine linen speaks of respectability and spirituality. And this man seemed to just want for nothing. Now there's nothing wrong tonight with wealth. Sometimes people misquote the word of God and they say money is the root of all evil. But that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says it is the love of money. That is the root of, of all evil. There's nothing wrong with wealth. God has blessed men in Scripture like, like Abraham especially with great wealth and David and Solomon and many others who were able to be trusted with great wealth. But the problem was that this man had made gold his God and money his master. Somebody once said that money is a very good servant but a very poor master. And it seems that this man was allowing his wealth and his riches to blind his, his mind to his need of God's salvation. And while there's nothing wrong tonight with wealth and money and finance, we need to recognize that money does not satisfy. Money does not satisfy the longing of the human heart. I remember hearing about a, a lottery winner many years ago whenever they won one of those big rollover jackpots maybe about 20 years ago and it rolled on for about three weeks and nobody had won and then his numbers came in and he, he won something in the region of 20 million. And then whenever he was interviewed a week or two later and they asked him, well, what do you want to do now that you've got all this money? And he said, I'd like to win the lottery again. Didn't satisfy Blaise Pascal once said that inside every human heart there's a God-shaped vacuum and only God can fill it. And so often the people that you read about that are so successful in the eyes of the world are, are very often miserable because they're not sure who they can trust. And they've learned that money cannot buy happiness and money cannot buy peace and money cannot buy contentment and sometimes the love of money and the desire for wealth can actually hinder a person from coming to Christ. That's why the Lord said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Money cannot satisfy. And it's sure as well tonight that money cannot save. All the money in the world cannot buy God's salvation. In fact, if the Lord had torn down the ivory walls, dug up the golden streets and took down the pearly gates and sent every angel from heaven. It would not have been enough to atone for one sin. It took the very Son of God to become a man and live a sinless, perfect life and go to a cross and shed his blood. That's why Peter said, we are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. As I think about the rich man and in life, the man with no name, I think about his finance. 
But reference is also made to his food. It simply says he fared sumptuously every day. He never knew one day in his life what it was to go hungry or to go to bed at night and his belly rumble. He never knew what it was like to go downstairs and there be no food in the cupboard or nothing to eat. This man fared sumptuously, ate extremely well every single day in life. He never, never knew what it was to hunger. In fact, there was so much left over that they beggared his gate in verse 21, desired even to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And that paints a very vivid picture, doesn't it? This man eating and eating almost in a, a gluttonous sense and the food falling from his table and so much left over in that poor beggar thinking, if I could just have some of the scraps, some of the crumbs and some of the leftover, I'd be a lot better off than I am now. Half the world tonight starving. And yet we eat well, don't we? Every day. This man was filled physically, but he was empty spiritually. And then, of course, we could consider as well something of his family. It becomes evident as you travel down through the, the passage here that this man was a family man. Verse 27 says, I have five brethren. Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brethren. Now, it's very interesting that he doesn't mention anything about his wife or his children. He doesn't mention anything about nephews or nieces or sisters-in-law. And it seems that the five brethren that remain are still living under their father's roof. And that would indicate to me tonight, perhaps, that this man that we're learning about tonight was not particularly old whenever he died. No mention is made of his wife or children or grandchildren or nephews or nieces or sisters-in-law. It seems that the family was still relatively young and his father was still alive. Somebody once said, the old must die, but the young, the young may die. And it becomes evident as well that he cares about his family. Send Lazarus to my father's house I have five brethren. Let him speak to them, testify to them of these eternal realities. He loves his family. And maybe tonight you're a bit like that as well. You love your family. Whether it's large or small, you love your parents, you love your spouse, you love your brothers, you love your sisters. You love your family. And you fare well. And maybe you don't really want for anything. The man with no name in life, finance, food, family. What about his faith? We ought not to fall into the trap of thinking that this man was an atheist or even that this man was an agnostic or even that this man believed in a God but had no thought of God at all. As you look at him honestly in life, it seems that he was certainly religious and had a nominal faith of sorts because in verse number 24, he recognized Abraham immediately. Father Abraham, and that indicates immediately that this man was Jewish. Abraham was a spiritual father to the Jewish nation, the father of the faithful, the father of the nation of Israel. And this man addresses him as father Abraham, and Abraham in turn addresses him as a son. So this man was Jewish. 
He had the law of God and he would have talked about Jehovah and the creator and, and the standards that God has given and the prophets and he, he was certainly a man of faith of sorts, a nominal type faith, not a saving faith, maybe just a superficial faith. And he embraced the religion of his day, the dominant religion of his nation. And you might be like that tonight as well. You might say, well, I'm a Protestant. Or I'm a Roman Catholic. Or you might narrow it down and say, well, I'm a Baptist. Or a, a Presbyterian. Or Church of Ireland. Or Methodist. Or Elam Pentecostal. Or Gospel Hall. Or Free Presbyterian. Whatever it might be. And you, you embrace the religion of the nation and you embrace the religion that you were brought up in and you're happy to attend the place of worship. Verse 27 indicates that he certainly believed in the power of prayer. I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send them to my father's house. Verse 29, he speaks about Moses and the prophets. That's the Old Testament scriptures. Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law. And so this man had a concept of sin and the standard that God has set. And he was also conscious of the prophets who pointed to the cross and pointed to the coming Messiah. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ our Lord declared, Search the scriptures for in them ye think that ye have life and there they that testifieth me. He was acquainted with the word of God. In verse 30 he uses the word repent. He understands that I am lost now because I never repented of my sins. And if my five brethren don't repent of their sins, they will come likewise to this place of torment. What is repentance? Repentance is to have a change of mind about ourselves, about God, about sin, that results in a change of direction. The old Westminster divines used to say, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And the Son of God declared in Luke 13, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And in light of all of these things, Abraham says to him in verse 25, Son, remember in your lifetime that you received good things. And he couldn't deny it. He had had a good life, maybe a short life, but a good life. He had lived well. He had the best of clothing, the best of food, a good family around him, faithful people around him. But he wasn't ready to meet God. I wonder tonight, are you ready? The Bible says, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. The book of Amos says, prepare to meet thy God. We have thought about the man with no name in life. Very briefly, what about the man with no name in death? Look at verse 22. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. They both died. That was really the only thing that they had in common that they both died. Their lives were different, and I believe their deaths were different as well, because whenever Lazarus the beggar died, the angels carried him into Abraham's bosom, a Jewish expression for heaven. In the economy of God, none of his children ever die alone. 
His angels are ministering spirits and they will guide us into glory. And that's a beautiful thing. Lazarus had a difficult life, but he had a glorious death and a blessed eternity. It also says that the rich man died and was buried. They both died because, friends, none of us are getting out of this world alive. The human mortality rate in Carried Off, Lisbon, Belfast, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, America, Canada, Africa, Asia, wherever you go, the human mortality rate is 100%. One out of one will die. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. We must needs die. The scripture says that we're all going down the valley, as it were, to the house appointed for all living. Now, none of us know when we will die. None of us know where we will die. Maybe in a hospital bed, maybe at home, maybe behind the wheel of a car, maybe crossing the street, maybe sitting in a meeting like this. Who knows? None of us know when we will die. None of us know where we will die. None of us know how we will die. But we all know that we will die, probably a lot sooner than any of us care to think. And it also says the rich man was buried. It doesn't say that Lazarus was buried. If Lazarus had nobody to feed him, it's highly unlikely that he had anyone to bury him. And just outside the city of Jerusalem, there was the Valley of Hinnom. And at the end of the Valley of Hinnom, there was a place called Gehenna. And they threw all of the city's refuge and waste and food that had just perished and dead carcasses and dead animals and people like Lazarus, whenever there was nobody to bury them, they threw them into that rubbish dump. Lazarus didn't have the privilege of a decent Christian burial. But the rich man died and was buried. And I'm sure he had a, a very big send-off. I'm sure that the people flocked to the funeral of this individual. After all, they're a well-known family, the father and the five brothers. And this man that's exceedingly rich. And I'm sure the people flocked along to his funeral. Many, many people were there, family friends, maybe old work colleagues, maybe school friends that he had many years ago, people from the synagogues that he went to, his neighbors. And I'm sure the funeral was very well attended. And I'm sure the rabbi that got up to conduct the funeral service spoke very highly of him. You wouldn't dare do anything less, would you? Especially a man of such standing and looking down at the congregation, these five young men sitting at the front, looking at the rabbi and a broken-hearted father sitting to the side. And the, the rabbi, the preacher, hardly knows what to say. I don't know whether he was an evangelical man. I don't know whether he was a liberal. But I'm sure he said a lot of nice things. This was a good man. He attended the synagogue faithfully. He was a big giver to the house of God. He used his riches well to, to support us. And they said all of the, the nice things from the pulpit. And I'm sure whenever the service was drawing to a close, all of the congregation said nice things to the family as well. Look, we're so sorry for your trouble. Can hardly believe that he's gone. I, I was speaking to him last week. He was a really good man. It seemed to be so sudden. I never thought that we would be sitting here today and <clears throat> whenever, they, whenever they've sympathized with the family, then they get honest with each other. 
Maybe sitting around a table eating and drinking together and think, well, I wonder who's going to get the farm. I wonder how they're going to divide up his wealth. I hear one of the brothers isn't all that happy about the will that was left and all of these things. And, and then I'm sure somebody, somewhere said, well, you know, it's good to know that he's not suffering now. It was a short illness, perhaps. And it's tragic, isn't it? But, you know, at least he's in a better place. He's in heaven. He's probably looking down on us right now and telling us not to be sad and not to cry too much. All the things that people say at funerals. I'm sure they were all said at this man's funeral. But after you read that he was buried, you read in verse 23, and now we have the man with no name in eternity and in hell lifted up his eyes, being in torments. Friends, was he in a better place? Or maybe more correctly, is he presently in a better place? No. Is his suffering over? No. You see, at death, friends, you, the soul leaves the body. That's what death is. It's not the cessation of existence. Death is but a, a separation of time and eternity. A separation from that which is temporal into that which is eternal. The separation of soul from body. The separation of an individual from everything that pertained to time and their they're brought into a new world, as it were, and, and the soul is every bit as real as the body. The soul can think, the soul can see, the soul can hear, the soul can reason, the soul of an individual can feel in eternity. And whenever this man died and was buried, he lifted up his eyes and he beheld eternity. And I'm sure his, his initial thought was, this isn't real. I can't possibly be here. And in hell lifted up his eyes. And what must he have beheld in that place of darkness as he lifted up his eyes and his, his eyes began to adjust and he began to look around him and suddenly he realizes where he is. The book of Job describes this experience as the king of terrors. It's an awful thing. Maybe his rabbi never told him that there was any possibility that he was going there. Maybe faithful people would try to tell him, listen, you would need to prepare to meet God. You're not saved. And he shrugged it off. And maybe he put it off and he procrastinated. But suddenly he realizes hell is literal. Verse number 28 says, I have five brethren, lest they also come to this place of torment. You know the Greek word for place is a word topos? from which we get the word topography. And topography is really the study of the lay of the land, the, 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 the gradients and the hills and the rocks and the soil types and the rivers and, and the lay of the land, topography. It's speaking of literal terra firma, a literal geographical location. The Son of God used the same word whenever he said to his disciples concerning heaven, I go to prepare a place for you, topos, a literal place, and everybody, I'm sure tonight, believes in heaven. But for every sermon that the Son of God preached about heaven, on average, he preached 13 sermons about hell. He spoke about outer darkness. He spoke about a lake of fire. 
He spoke about weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. He spoke about the place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And I tell you tonight, no preacher who loves the souls of men gets any pleasure at all in speaking about hell. I always try to pray that God will guide me in a different direction. But in a gospel mission like this, I need to be faithful to your soul. Vance Havner was an old American evangelist and he had a very quaint way of putting things. Uh, Dr. Billy Graham, and you might agree with everything that Billy Graham said or stood for, but he said that Vance Havner was the most quotable preacher of the 20th century. Vance Havner was once in a, a church and he was preaching about this very subject. And a lady came to the door at the end of the service and she wouldn't let go of his hand and she gritted her teeth and she said, Mr. Havner, we are good people. Would you not have been better off coming to our church and maybe speaking and encouraging us or talking about the meek and lowly Jesus instead of that awful subject of hell? We don't need to hear it. Mr. Havner looked her in the eye and said, Dear friend, he says, it was from the lips of the meek and lowly Jesus that I got all my information about hell. You study your Bible, you'll discover that the Son of God, full of grace and truth, spoke more about hell than any of the psalmists or any of the prophets or any of the disciples or any of the apostles. Why did he do that? Because he was cruel? No. Because he was compassionate. And he knows more about these things than, than any of us do. Hell is literal. You might say, well, where is hell? We can't be dogmatic, perhaps, about that. People have different views. But one old Puritan put it this way. He said, hell is at the end of a Christless life. That's exactly where it is. Hell is literal. You notice in verse 23 and 24, hell is intolerable. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. Hell is intolerable. It wasn't the end of his suffering. In real terms, it was only the beginning. I believe he suffered in his memory. Verse 25 says, Son, remember all the good things. Do you remember all the pleasures? Do you remember all the privileges that you had under God and under the gospel? Do you remember your pride? You looked at that beggar named Lazarus and you despised that he lay of all places in the city at your gate and, and just was like a, a fly in the ointment of your beautiful surroundings and your pride and how you looked down your nose at him. And maybe you thought to yourself, well, if that's where his religion got him, I want nothing to do with him. Do you remember your procrastination? Son, remember. Some of you will maybe remember this mission in eternity. And then there's the torment of vision. It says in verse 23, he lifted up his eyes and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And there's all sorts of weird and wonderful theories about, about how he was able to see from, from where he was in hell into glory and into paradise. I just believe that for our information, the Lord granted that view. And he saw Abraham and he saw Lazarus. But Lazarus now is different. Lazarus is comforted. There's no more sores and there's no more boils and there's no more rags than Lazarus. He's transformed. He's happy now. He's in glory. He's with Abraham. He's with, 
ones who have gone on before and the rich man is separated from all of those things. Separated from family, separated from friends and separated from grace. And then there's the torment as well of the flames. Verse 24, I am in tormented in this flame. Send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Many years ago, I'm sure it's about 23 years ago now, I remember preaching one night as we did every Thursday night in Lisburn Town Centre. Late night shopping was very popular back in those days and I worked in a factory at the time. There was about 550, 600 people worked in it. And Thursday was payday, so every Thursday night I met lots of the lads that I worked with. I remember going into work on a Friday morning and a fellow called Mickey called me over, a Roman Catholic lad, and he says, why do you do that? He says, I sat behind you and listened to you for a while and he says, I just wondered, why would a young man like you stand out there Thursday night and talk about God and talk about the Bible? And I says, well, Michael, it's very simple. I believe there's a God. I believe we're all going to stand before him someday. I believe that we're all separated from God by our sins, but I believe that the Son of God died on a cross and invites us to come, not only to save us, but to give us life and meaning and purpose. And he says, well, my dad told me that this world, this present evil age, he said that this is hell. And I says, well, that can't possibly be true. And I says, I can prove it to you. And he says, well, go ahead. And I says, well, very simply, the Bible says in Luke 16 that there's no water in hell. And I tell you, boy, you could see this fellow beginning to think. I says, you know, if you're thirsty, you can very easily just go to a faucet or a tap and turn it on and fill yourself a glass of water. But there's no water in hell. That's how we know that this present world, one simple reason how we know that this is not hell. Hell is still to come. Hell is eternal. Verse 26 says, there's a great gulf that's fixed. The Savior spoke about eternal fire and unquenchable fire. Hell has no exits. You know, if I could lift the lid off hell tonight and speak to the, the millions of souls that are down there and, and say to them, listen, one million years from tonight, one of you will have a small chance of being rescued and being delivered and getting into heaven. A very, very thin ray of hope would shine into that place. But that will never happen. Because there's a gulf and it's fixed, it's settled. The Bible says, in the place where the tree falleth, there shall it lie. You know, one of the most solemn things about this account is verse number 28. Whenever the rich man is learning to pray, prays for himself, and he realizes that's futile, and then he begins to pray for his family. We've made reference to it already praying for his family from hell itself. And I don't want to be offensive or melodramatic, but could it be tonight that there's somebody in a lost eternity right now and you're on their mind and your name is on their lips and they're praying for you that you'd be saved and turned to Christ and get right with God. Abraham says, well, they've got the Old Testament scriptures. They have their Bibles. 
And he disagrees and says, no, but if somebody went from the dead, they would repent. Now, that sounds very logical, doesn't it? I remember a man in Clarawood Estate in Belfast one day was a, when I was a student knocking doors for Sandown Road and speaking to this man and he told me that he was terminally ill and he didn't have that long to live, but he had no real thought about God at all. And we talked on for a while and he says, well, listen, he says, how come if, if there's a heaven, if there's a hell, nobody's ever come back? Just like the rich man here, same argument. And I said to him, well, would you honestly, would you honestly believe somebody if you were walking through Belfast and some fella came up and tapped you on the shoulder and laid hold upon you and he was filled with fear and he says, listen, I just want to tell you, I've been to hell and I've come back or I've been to heaven and I've come back and I just want to tell you that it's real. Would you believe someone like that? And he says, well, probably not. And I says, well, the fact of the matter is somebody did come back and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you willing to believe his record, his word, his gospel? Hell is literal, intolerable, eternal. Hell as well is judicial. God must punish sin. People cry out that there's very little justice in this world, but it'll be payday someday. R.G. Lee, the great Baptist preacher of Bellsview Baptist Church in America, had a sermon that he preached thousands of times in his life called Payday Someday. Hell is judicial. Nobody will be able to argue against the Almighty God that they have been treated wrongfully. Because whenever we sin, we sin against an eternal God who gave us life and who loves us and offers us forgiveness. And whenever we sin against God, we're sinning against a God who is eternal. One last thought and we're finished almost. Hell is avoidable. Most people, I'm sure, don't intend to be in a lost eternity. George Gallup in one of his Gallup polls in the 1990s, I think it was, went about and sent some of his workers out to ask people in America, just in the streets, how many believed that they would be in heaven after they died. 78% were convinced they would be in heaven. 4% felt that if there was a hell, they might be there. And the remaining small percentage were undecided. This man was rich. Religious, respectable, but he died in his sins and was lost. But he didn't need to be. Whenever the Titanic was sinking and the alarm was sent out for people to get from their beds and the casinos and the restaurants and the different places about the ship and get to the top deck and get on the lifeboats because the ship was going down, many people didn't believe that that was even possible because they were told the ship's unsinkable. And about the first half of lifeboats that were lowered down into the waters, most of them were only about half full. Some only had six or seven people on them. And many more could have been saved if they'd only got onto a lifeboat, but they just didn't believe that they were in any danger. And tragically, many perished needlessly. This gospel mission has been organized for people that are not converted, or people that are not sure whether they're going to heaven or not. And there's a Savior tonight from all sin. And he says to you tonight, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. If you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you 
all of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if you receive me, I'll give you the power to become a child of God. And if you come to me, I will in no wise cast you out. And if you believe in the Lord, you'll be saved. And if you call upon his name, you'll be saved. Friends, now get to the cross. Sin can be punished and dealt with in one of two places. Christ's cross or God's hell. And if your sin is not dealt with and forgiven and purged away at the cross, you bear the penalty of your own sins yourself. You say tonight, well, you said at the start, this man has got no name or his name's not given. Why is that? It's simply because God is no respecter of persons. He might have had a big name in his day and generation and in his town or city, but as far as God was concerned, his name was never written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And he's just another lost soul tonight in eternity. I often relate a story that the Reverend W.P. Nicholson, the great evangelist, told in some of his crusades. A young lad from the province here was burdened for the liberties of his country and went off and forged his signature and forged his papers so he could fight in the First World War. He was only a teenager. And he went off to France, Passchendaele Ridge, left his father and mother brokenhearted at home and they wondered would they ever see their boy again. Sadly, they didn't. Because early on in his military career, his arm was severed by a cannonball. And he lost an enormous amount of blood and he just fell in the mud and somebody found him and he let out a groan and they lifted him and they took him to the nearest casualty clearing station. The Christian doctor realized what had happened and a huge artery had been severed and he had lost several pints of blood and he had no strength or energy left and he wasn't even conscious. But that Christian doctor sewed up the artery as best he could and filled up the, the gaping wound with packing and bandaged his arm up as tight as he could and gave him to the charge of a young nurse. And he said to that nurse, this young man is dying and I want to speak to him. But I'm so busy looking after other patients, I want you to look after him. And if he gains consciousness at all, even for a moment or two, whatever time of the day or night it is, call for me and I'll come and see him. And that nurse fulfilled her duties well. She sat at his bedside and she wiped the sweat off his brow as he slipped in and out of all sorts of delirium. And then all of a sudden, as she was looking around her at other patients, she turned around and he was pulling himself up in the bed and his eyes were wide open. And he all of a sudden realized that something terrible had happened to him. And he realized where he was and what was happening. And he began to cry and she immediately sent for the doctor who left what he was doing. And he was there within minutes. And as he looked at that young man, he saw that the white bandages were now seeping with crimson blood. And he recognized what had happened. The stitches had burst in that rotting artery and whatever blood was still pumping through his veins was being dispelled at a fast rate. And he took all of the bandages out and he took all the packing out and he took that artery and pinched it shut between his finger and thumb and simply said to that young man, he says, young man, you're dying and you're going out into eternity to meet God. He says, I can't hold you on forever. He says, I can't do anything more for you. Everything that I've done, I've tried to do, but 
before I let you go, are you saved? Before I let you go, is it well with your soul? Do you know Christ as your saviour? Have you ever called upon him? Can't hold you on any longer. I'm going to have to let you go. And I feel a bit like that doctor, and so did Mr. Nicholson when he told that story. Time is gone tonight. We've gone well beyond time. I apologize in a sense for that. But these things are so important, and in a minute or two, the meeting's over. And I'm going to let you go. But before I do that, can I ask you one last time, is it well with your soul? Don't leave the meeting without Christ. If we can help you at all, speak to us. We'd love to point you to the cross. Your soul is precious. I pray that you'll come to the Savior. I'm going to let you go. Is it well with your soul? Mr. McLaughlin.